0: Or go to anchor.fm to get started. On this week's episode
1: in Her Space.
0: Intellect, where white supremacy comes
2: into knowledge and education. Um, The idea that Christopher Columbus discovered something. Christopher Columbus didn't discover anything. He just happened to see something for the first time. And this concept that nothing exists until white people see it that's white supremacy Mm -hmm. the idea that he discovered people he discovered land that's absurd the idea that it, it just didn't exist until he was there um
0: welcome to her space a podcast dedicated to uplifting women like you we're your hosts dr dominique broussard a college professor and psychologist
1: and terry lomax a techie and motivational speaker In a world where Black women are often misrepresented and misunderstood, please join us as we initiate authentic conversations on everything from fibroids to fake friends, and create a safe space where Black women can just be. Today, we have a very special guest who's near and dear to my heart, okay, ladies? I've been a fan of this woman for years now, and we connected on social media back in, I think it was 2014, and I saw her Facebook status updates, and that's what really attracted me to her work. I was obsessed with her writing. I mean, you'll you'll realize it once we start talking about her work and you follow her on social media, but her writing was so impeccable and so touching, and so I reached out to her, and I asked her if she could write for my blog, and I'm low-key thinking, why isn't she famous? Why hasn't she been discovered? Like, well, what is going on here? Because it was just so incredible. And so we worked together on the Mocha Girls Put Stop blog. And fast forward a couple of years, and Rachel's glow up is unreal. Okay, listen to this Rachel Cargill is a public academic, writer, and lecturer. Her activist and academic work are rooted in providing intellectual discourse, tools, and resources that explore the intersection of race and womanhood. Her social media platforms boast a community of over 260,000 where Rachel guides conversations, encourages critical thinking, and nurtures meaningful engagement with people all over the world. Rachel is also a dynamic entrepreneur. Her organization, the Loveland Group, houses a family of companies that are dedicated to lifelong culture, opportunity, and learning. Rachel is currently living in New York City and attending Columbia University, where she's studying anthropology and women's studies. But wait, there's more. Rachel is a writer for Harper's Bazaar and has been featured on Mashable, The Huffington Post, TEDx, Bend, Catch Her Talk in October, and um, Red Table Talk with Jada Pinkett-Smith, Willow, and Gammy. Hello, Rachel Cargill. Welcome to the Her Space Podcast. Thank you. Man, I
2: need to cut my bio down. I feel
0: like that's so long. <laughs> <laughs> Don't dim your light, lady. Yes. Let that light Bom, shine. That's, that's what
1: happens when you lit lit.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh my goodness. Thank you for having me. You yes. are so welcome.
0: And so I want to take us into our quote of the day. And so our quote comes from Rachel in we picked this quote because we felt like it really speaks to what we're going to dive into today. And Rachel says, I don't want your love and light if it doesn't come with solidarity and action. And one more time for the people in the back. <laughs> I don't want your love and light if it doesn't come with solidarity and action. So, Rachel. Yes. When you wrote that, what really came to mind? What really sparked that particular quote?
2: I think that that particular quote came from me recognizing that when there were a lot of the police brutality, a lot of the mass shootings, a lot of um The harm done in the Black community, what I was getting from a lot of the white people in my world, particularly those who existed in the spaces of wellness and spirituality, that there's always this inclination to say, well, I'm sending you my love and light, especially with social media. It's a popular hashtag. It's a popular quick thing to put out when you're sending your condolences or letting someone know that you see them or you hear them or see or hear what they're going through. And so oftentimes we were getting love and light, but there's this very clear understanding for me at least, and I know for many, many organizers and activists and people who are doing this work, that it's not the love and light that will change things. It's the action and the solidarity. And so I was really looking for a succinct way to let people know that their love and light wasn't enough and that if they were really Going to show up as an ally to me and the people in my community. It was going to be that solidarity and action that was going to um, get us moving towards solutions.
0: Wow. And, you know, when I hear you talk about it in that way, I know that you weren't referencing anything recent, but considering the time that we are in right now, in this very moment, we are days after a weekend with two mass shootings. And so talk to us about what you think would be helpful for people. How can people engage in action? Well, I think action comes with showing up in ways that
2: will actually shift um, the systems that are affecting us. So the systems that are that affect us, particularly with mass shootings, has to do with laws that are being passed. So showing up, calling congressmen, um, ensuring that you're going to marches and you're making your voice heard, making sure that you're voting in a way that ensures that these types of laws will be passed to make sure that. People aren't having access to the types of weapons that can kill, you know, nine people in 20 seconds. And so the type of action we need isn't, you know, someone liking a post that where someone mentions how sad they are, or how upset they are, or how furious they are. The type of action needs to be in ensuring that systems are changing. Um, you know, people say love is the answer. And that's a common conversation within spirituality spaces or just spaces who are looking to, um, you know, come together in a spiritual way. And so I often say two things. One, if love was the answer, I think particularly looking at the Black community and a lot of the issues that Black people have, I think Black people love the hardest. And so we would have loved our way out of a lot of things by now. So that's the first thing that if love and light was the answer, but also with love being the answer, we would never walk into an orphanage and say, oh, wow, these kids should have loved their way into new parents by now. We never walk into a homeless shelter and go up to a homeless person and say, wow, you really need to start loving harder and maybe you'd get a house. So it's not, so love could be part of the equation, but it's not part of, but it's not the only answer. And we need to start taking actionable steps to change systems instead of just speaking words.
1: Rachel, we are only a couple minutes and I'm over here shouting. I'm trying to keep it down over here, but I'm over here shouting like, yes, girl, preach. Okay, you preaching really quickly because I know we're going to dive in deep into this. I want to take a step back and, you know, we also learned this week that we've gained another ancestor. And so I just want to talk a bit about Toni Morrison, you know, the American novelist, essayist, editor, teacher, and professor who wrote some of our favorite books, Beloved, The Bluest Eye, and Tar Baby, to name a few. Can you just talk a little bit about what she meant to you? Because I think that you have definitely definitely um, you have this bold and courageous spirit that I'm sure a lot of people admire and many of our greats you know they possess that same energy so what does she mean to you I think that
2: you know after seeing the documentary that they just put out about Tony's life looking you know aside from reading her work Just looking at her life, she was a very round and grounded woman. She wasn't necessarily trying to do anything that would change the tides of the world. She was just telling her truth. She was just telling her truth of the Black experience. She was really what we say now. She was really staying in her lane and doing her work. And that was the power of what she was providing us. And so I think that I'm so inspired by her willingness to say, I know why I'm here and I'm going to do it. And I hope that we all can pull from that in whatever ways we recognize what we're here for and that we do it because, I mean, she was here, she died at age 88. She did a lot in that time frame. And so to think that she could be so powerful just living her truth, I hope we can all pull from that and really get get some groundedness in our lane and do everything that we can while we're here.
1: So incredible. Thank you for beautifully stating that. And I just kind of want to, we're going to shift gears a bit now. And I want to talk a bit about the work that we did together. So Rachel and I worked together in 2017. And a few years prior, I was telling Dom about the fact that there was a moment and I remember this vividly when we were working together and you got super busy and life just changed. I mean, mm-hmm. Rachel just, I mean, the glow up, the, it just, it went crazy. Like if you can tell us, Rachel, how 2018 was for you, because I believe that was the year that everything really shifted for you career wise, presence wise. Tell us a bit about that. Um, maybe what happened before and what you were doing prior to 2018. And then when everything was like, oh my gosh, my life is very different now. Right?
2: yeah you know it's so funny terry because i'm currently in martha's vineyard and i was in martha's vineyard when i made that call to you last year and was like hey i think things are really changing for me and it's so funny because i i I went past the exact restaurant that i remember i was sitting there and i was like you know what i need to call her and so i was just there and so i'm still i'm here i'm not still here i'm here again this (laughs) week um (laughs) vacationing but it's just that circle moment of me calling you and telling you that but um yeah, I, I think it was it, it was incredibly quick and it was incredibly unexpected. And by unexpected, I want to say I didn't think it would happen so quickly, but I kind of always knew that something would happen. I just didn't know when or how. And so I think that when the moment came where my voice was kind of being recognized and referenced and people were investing in um my work and investing in learning from me and investing in, um, just being in the same room with me to be in conversation. I think that I recognized, and I guess kind of to what I was saying about Tony, like I recognize like, oh, I've come into my lane and now it's my job to do all that I can while I'm here. And I recognize that not everyone, you know, I, I realized very early that not everyone always gets that opportunity to know why they're here. It's just true. Like everyone doesn't get the opportunity. And I think there's so much privilege in having this space. And so I think I cling really tightly to it. But that moment when it all switched was when I realized that um, I was going to be able to do this work full-time. Before it was kind of like, oh, I'll write here and I'll write there. But I was a full-time nanny. I was nannying full-time. And so the moment I was able to start doing this work full-time was when it kind of clicked that, oh my gosh, my life is completely different now.
1: (laughs) Yes, that makes sense. And so you were a nanny. I feel like you had other side hustles. You were a nanny. You had your other businesses and you were like freelance writing, I remember. And I feel like Is that right? Yeah,
2: I was freelance writing. I was I was like babysitting hardcore. I was babysitting in New York City and D.C. So those are um, major side hustles that you usually can make a good amount of money with. So I was um, doing a lot of that. I would offer, you know, courses here and there if there was something that I recognized might be of value. I was, you know, doing things here and there. But then the first thing that really shifted was when I uh, did my first lecture unpacking white feminism. Um, I did the lecture and I was like, oh, I think I rented out a conference room with 12 seats. And I was like, oh, I've learned all this stuff and I really want to share it. So I'll do a lecture. And then I think I ended up selling 65 tickets and like 400 tickets online. And I was like, wow, this is something people are really wanting to hear and talk about. And so that's when I recognized that I had a voice in this particular space that could change the way that a lot of people are existing in the world. And that's when I kind of went full-fledged into into the space of anti- racism um and having conversations particularly at this intersection of race and
0: womanhood and that's a great lead in for us to kind of dive into what led you into this work specifically, because I know that sometimes, particularly in academia, when you have someone who is talking about white feminism or racism, and it's not. A white person then there's there can be a lot of backlash and so talk to us about what got you into this work and then kind of share with us what the feedback has been from people in regards to you diving into this pretty heavy topic
2: Yeah, so it started after a photo that I, that was taken of my friend Dana and I at the Women's March in 2017 after the inauguration. Um, After that photo went viral, there was a very, it it was, it's a photo of um, me and her, both of us with, and she's a, she's a white Jewish woman and um, I'm a black woman. And so there was the photo of us standing there with our fists raised and we both had signs, one that said, if you don't fight for all women, then you fight for no women. And then her sign, um, said, uh, me and I cannot remember, but it, it it said like protect, um, and it had all the marginalized groups like poor, fat, Muslim, um, Latina, uh, black. And then it went, you know, disabled women. And it went all the way through various, um, Various marginalized groups. And so that photo went viral after the march. And when it first went viral, it went viral to a very white audience, the Huffington Post Women, Refinery29. And um, I got a lot of really great feedback and everyone was telling, you know, Dana and I, yeah, we agree with you um blah 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 and they were really excited about it. So then a few weeks later the photo went viral to more of a black audience after AfroPunk posted it. And when that happened, we got a very different response and it was mostly geared towards me, people saying, well, "Why would you be a feminist? You look so silly standing next to that white woman who doesn't care about you if you really knew about the feminist movement." And I was like, "Wait, What do they know that I don't know? And so it made me start really questioning my space in the feminist movement. But I also was in this very interesting experience of like my face and my feminism being front and center with this photo going viral. And so um, I ended up doing a ton of research. Like what do they know that I don't know? What do I need to learn about this intersection of being Black and being a feminist? And how does my existence as a black woman enter into this space? And so it was all me doing, you know, looking into books, into journals, listening to lectures, watching videos. And I realized there's so much that I didn't know and if I don't know it there's a whole bunch of other people who don't know it and so I started to teach on what I had found which was what I found was that there was this huge silencing of black women within the feminist movement silencing of them discarding of their voices complete dismissal of their contributions and so I was like okay I'm going to start teaching what I've learned because there's so many more people who need to learn this, not just the white women who need to recognize what the history of this movement and their place in this movement has been, but also Black women so they can be affirmed in knowing that their experiences aren't, you know, one-offs, that this is kind of our experience in our relationship with white women over history, particularly in this movement. Um, So it basically came to me um, kind of teaching as I was learning.
1: I just want to take a quick pause, Rachel, and, and State how fascinating it is that you took a moment where you were being criticized. I'm sure it was unconstructive and also constructively right. You took that moment to get mm-hmm. curious and not just you know well, you know shut up, y'all don't know what you're talking about or you know whatever like argue back. But you took that moment to really go within and dig deeper. And you you said you asked this question of yourself. You know what do they know that I don't know? I think that is just so remarkable that you took that moment to do that, and that's really been a catalyst for what's what we see now. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, I think
2: it's been a catalyst for a lot of lot of my questioning and answering and what I've I'm ending up teaching
0: now. And so from what you've been studying, and because it sounds like you've done a lot of work in terms of really trying to find the answers. And so talk to us about, based on what you've been studying, how would you define white supremacy?
2: I mean, white supremacy overall is the myth that whiteness holds a superiority over any other race or ethnicity, but it's rooted in capitalism and it's rooted in um, colonialism and this need for, it's a it's a greed, it's a greed for resources, it's a greed for space, it's a greed for um, kind of what one needs to think of themselves and you know what it's this brings up a Toni Morrison quote that I think speaks a lot to this topic as a whole where she said what are you without racism are you any good are you still strong still smart do you still like yourself and so this idea that one's race can hold everything they need to be a superior person And so for white people to exist with this myth is to give them an up based on nothing but their race. And that I think is a clue in to the myth of it, (laughs) the myth of it and the, the need that they have for something to hold them higher. If they can make it based on something like skin then they don't have to do any other work to be good people.
1: That's a really good point. And I don't know about y'all, but I didn't learn about white supremacy in school. I wonder why, right? Maybe because it's so deeply entrenched in our culture that it's like, oh, we're not going to teach them about this. We're going to teach them what we want them to know, right? And so I would love to talk a bit about how do we see white supremacy show up in culture? And we have an international audience. And so I know folks that are you know, in different parts of the world, they're impacted by this as well, even if they don't know it. So Rachel, can you talk a bit about how does white supremacy, because we hear the word thrown around a lot and some folks, they get nervous depending on who's around. It's like, oh shit, let me not say white supremacy because I might ruffle, ruffle uh. some feathers. How does it show up in our everyday? Because it's so, like it's there, but you may not know it if you don't know it, right?
2: Yeah, it shows up in our everyday understanding of what's normal, what's natural and what our standards are. So our beauty standards, looking at what is normal and what else, what else stands as exotic. So if we think about, um, you know, blonde hair, blue eyed, that's what we consider the norm and anything else is considered exotic. So, you know, a Brazilian woman with long black hair, um, green eyes and tan skin. We consider that exotic, but exotic just means not white because she's not exotic to her land. She's not exotic to herself. There's nothing exotic about her except for that is exotic to the white gaze. Um, Even if we think about intellect, where white supremacy comes into knowledge and education, um, the idea that Christopher Columbus discovered something. Christopher Columbus didn't discover anything. He just happened to see something for the first time. And this concept that nothing exists until white people see it that's white supremacy mm-hmm. the idea that he discovered people he discovered land that's absurd the idea that it, it just didn't exist until he was there um it shows up in our expectations of language the idea that if you don't speak english a very white language if you don't speak it well then that means you're not smart no it's usually people who don't speak english you can speak multiple different languages and a lot of white people might not be able to do that, but it's understanding that white languages are the languages of intellect. And um, so there's all of these ways that we have been convinced that whiteness is the standard and whiteness is something to be aspired to. And even If we take it outside of the context of black and white, but looking at proximity to whiteness, so straight hair. Yeah, it might be black hair, but as long as if it's straight, it's prettier because that's closer to the white standard. So the proximity to whiteness, even if something isn't white, the closer it is to whiteness, the way, the more better we see it. So we'll say, oh, well, you talk white. That's saying you talk like you're closer to a white person. So that makes you a better person. We, we have this scale of proximity, and we think that the closer something is to whiteness, the better it is. And that's part of the myth that we've been taught and um, what white
1: supremacy thrives off of. That makes perfect sense. It makes me think about in every culture that we, that I'm sure we're, you know, anyone listening is aware of, anyone that's darker in that culture, whether, whether you're Brazilian, whether you're, you know, from Trinidad, whether you're from, you know, wherever you're from, America, Africa, darker people are always treated. Worse, And then we had this colorism issue within communities where it's like, oh, if you're lighter, it's better. Right. So we see this and we see it everywhere, you know, in the world. And so I'd love to talk about your critiques of feminism, because I think that the feminism that many of us have learned is like, oh, it's all women are great and let's celebrate women's rights. But as you, you know, dug a little deeper in your journey, you've realized that eh, it's not really what feminism was based off of. So tell us a bit more about what you've learned in your critiques. Yeah, just the feminist movement,
2: overall, when we hear the word woman, it's usually referencing a white woman. So throughout all of the waves, looking at women, quote unquote, women getting the right to vote, um, that was, Black women didn't get the right to vote until decades after white women did. So it it's under the guise of all women, but it's not actually women. I, I also teach about the second wave of the feminist movement, where we were looking at uh, white women in particular, who were calling it women's empowerment, this idea of getting out of the house, being less domesticated, Um, working. Working was not revolutionary. Working was revolutionary to white women. Black women had been working for generations for free. So the idea of work was revolutionary to white women only and to say that this option to work was part of a women's movement is not true it was part of a white women's movement and we see that here again you know in generations now looking at the ways i often call it voting your whiteness over your womanhood the way that white women are voting and they're making these decisions to um like I, I guess the best way to say it is to vote their whiteness over their womanhood. White women voted for Trump at 53 percent of the white women who went into the voting booths voted for President Trump. And so that's just showing that, that over half of the white women who made that decision voted to ensure that their whiteness was maintained at the detriment of other women. And it's continuing to show up wave after wave of, feminist, of, of the
0: feminist movement.
1: Wow. And that, that, that leads us into the next uh, question around something that you mentioned called toxic white feminism playbook. I think you have an article that talks about when white supremacy wears heels or something along those lines. Yeah. I wrote a piece for Harper's
2: Bazaar called when white, when white, feminism is just white supremacy in heels and it's a conversation around the ways that white women are complacent in the white supremacy that they pretend that they're not part of and like you said i bring up the conversations of you know but who's raising these men someone sews the KKK uniforms, you know, the men aren't, the men definitely aren't sitting there making their own uniforms. There's women who are behind them, feeding them, loving them, caring for them and ensuring that they feel emboldened in the work that they do. And so we need to consider how white women play into this conversation and not just look at them as outsiders. And I think that's a really tough pill for white women to swallow, to see that they can both be oppressed by their gender, but also oppressors because of their race. And so there's a lot of conversation that needs to be had within white women. communities about how they're not just resting in this idea of them being a victim of, you know, gender-based violence or gender-based discrimination, but also how they're benefiting from and building off of the violence and discrimination against people of color. I often ask the question in my lectures and my workshops, you know, who? Who's watching these white women's kids while they're out marching in the streets? If it was really about all women, we would they would ensure that all of their, you know, West Indian and Black nannies were there as well. And as someone who worked in the nanny world, I can say that even though these white women are out demanding, you know, um, equal pay and equal benefits, they're definitely not giving that to the women who are working for them. They're definitely not ensuring that they're paid well and that they have all of everything they need to to live well, to live their lives well. And so I think that there's a lot that white women have to swallow in terms of um, the position that they have based on their gender and how that shows up, also in how they
0: exist with their
2: race.
1: That's a
0: lot. <laughs> and so as I'm, it, it, it's so much to unpack, and I feel like there's like a lot that we could. There's so many more questions that I have, but I know that we have like a limited amount of time. And so before we move into a a slightly different segment, well, not a slightly different segment, a totally different segment, (laughs) I do have one final question around that to think about. So for us to think about the majority of our audience is Black women. Mm -hmm. Her space is for Black women. And Mm -hmm. so- And a lot of us are in spaces where we are working for, working with white women. Some of us may be friends with white women. And so I'm not of the belief that it is our job to always do the educating when we're the oppressed. Yeah. But when we have these opportunities to call someone out or engage in a healthy dialogue, particularly people who are close to us, how would you recommend, what do you usually tell your sister friends about how to engage in a dialogue with white women?
2: Well, there's two things I say. The first is you don't have to, like, you just don't have to. It's not your job. Like you mentioned, it's it's none of our jobs to be the educators. But for some of us, it is our job. Like for me, I literally make my livelihood by doing this work. So always, I always say, send them to my page, send them to my website, say, I'm not going to do this work, but I know someone who does, here's her information, pay her for it. So that's one of them. I often tell employers, like the one sole Black woman in your company is not your diversity and inclusion teacher it's not you need to actually hire someone who does this work um so making those demands saying just because i'm black doesn't mean that i teach on this if you'd like to have someone teach here's a list of people there's me there's a million other educators who do this work so you are welcome to refer people to the people who actually do this work um as as their work. The next is that I always say to have a tool belt. So a lot of my work, my work is very white facing. I have, I think I have almost 280,000 followers right now. And a majority of them are white women. And so my, I'm, my work is constantly facing white women, but my work is ultimately for the black community. And in my work, I often give templates for conversation. So I would encourage people. There's there's the standard things that white people are going to say and do that really hurt us. And sometimes when we're in those moments of high emotion, it's hard to come up with the language to express what we feel or what needs to be said in order to call people out. So I often create templates. That give people the words that they can use that they can kind of practice or kind of have on their phone or in their back pocket for when they don't have the emotional energy to come up with a response so that's something to maybe um, look into my work other people's work and say what have other people said to combat this and how can I kind of have this in my back pocket to be ready to have this conversation when the moment comes up. Um, And the last thing is, I often have a tool belt of resources. So if we just think of books that we've read or articles we've read, um, authors, speakers, that we can say, I don't have the energy or the time or the interest in educating you right now, but here's someone you can read. Here's someone you can listen to. Um, Here's here's some information you can use. Those are other ways to kind of know that you did something. You don't have to deal with kind of if you happen to have guilt for not doing something, even though you shouldn't. But if you happen to have guilt saying I should have done something, you can always have Have kind of a tool belt of resources for people to say, I see that you're spiritually bypassing right now, or I see that you're trying to tone police me right now, or I see that you're trying to do all these various things. Here's something you can read so you can check yourself and we can try to have this conversation at another time when I'm not as hurt as I am right now based on what you've done or said.
0: Thank you. That is so amazing. And I, and I say, thank you for doing the work on behalf of all of us and, We will definitely be sure to include a link to your website in our show notes so that listeners can go and access. And I love how you pointed out, you pay me to do this work. You will pay me. I'm not doing this for free.
1: All right, Rachel. So we're going to shift gears now. And this is our last segment of the show that we do with guests. And it's called, Oh, You Clatch It? And I'll explain what it is, and then we'll dive in a bit deeper and ask some of these amazing questions, these very serious professional questions we have for you. So (laughs) because we recognize and appreciate and celebrate the multifaceted woman and believe that it's okay to be classy and ratchet, and you can still be elegant and dance to strip club music if you so choose, we invite you to the OU Clatchet segment. So we want to know, Rachel, do you take on the challenge? Yes, I do. I'm ready. Yay. All right. All right. So the first question we have for you is which song gets you on the dance floor at the club or party? Anything Lizzo ever has done.
0: <laughs>
1: yes. Don't put yes. me on a Lizzo. I love Lizzo. She is amazing. All right. So Lizzo in the house. Um, What's your favorite hairstyle on yourself? I love box braids. Box long,
2: uh,
0: irrationally long box braids. <laughs> <laughs> they can never be irrationally long They long is just long okay. even if it scrapes the floor it's yeah. wonderful <laughs> hey, there
1: we go what's the best compliment you've ever received
2: oh people you know it's so funny people ask me that often the best compliment I've ever received was a guy that I was talking to and he told me I was the most curious girl he had ever met
1: I love that yes. that is such a cool compliment okay okay yeah
0: <laughs> who's your bad boy or bad girl crush
1: Ooh,
2: that's. Oh, you know who it is? David Ruffin. I really love him from The (laughs) Temptation.
1: I'm okay. I'm okay. she took us back and I, loved, like, I, I it right love I
2: love The so much my dad like used to play him all, used to play The all the time and then when I watched the movie I think Leon the actor I thought he was fine so then it made me like curious and study who who the actual <laughs> David Ruffin was and then I saw pictures of him I was like oh wait real one of him was fine too but then you know the movie he was like all all the way out of control but I still love him <laughs>
1: Yes, that movie was epic. That's like childhood classic yes. right there.
0: Yes. Okay, now speaking of music, twerk or two-step? Oh, twerk all day. Get it, get, get it, get it, it, get it, get it.
2: <laughs> What's your favorite book? Oh, man. My favorite? There's so many. For me, say, asking what your favorite book is like asking what's your favorite child. Like, there's no way... There's no way that I can oh. choose. Um, I'm trying to. We won't think. do that to I mean, you then. I'm man. What's my favorite? I I don't even think I have a favorite book. I I read so much, and I love book. I just set up three whole bookshelves in my house: one in my kitchen, one in my bedroom, and one in my Whoa. living room. Like, and I have a small New York apartment. Oh, <laughs> so yes. um, there's so many. Okay. There's so many.
1: <laughs> We're gonna switch this up for you, Rachel. How about what's your favorite self-care practice because you do so much heavy lifting, emotional labor and all that good you know good stuff for our community and for others? What's your favorite like self-care tactic?
2: Sleeping in, I feel like we get so caught up in busyness and we get defined by how busy we are or how productive we are. And so I think like sleeping in is my is such a like revolution. say I'm just going to sleep a little longer
0: yes yes yes. (laughs) and one final question what is something that many people wouldn't know about you
2: Mm, I'm a pretty vulnerable person so people I've I've posted nudes on my Instagram so people know a good (laughs) amount about me (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think I was I was just talking to my partner about this I I'm pretty fluent in sign language. It's something that I studied when I was younger. And so sign language has always been a really um, special part of my life. I don't really get to use it a ton, but it is something that I know.
1: That's That's, cool. That's super cool. Well, Rachel, we just want to one, honor you, celebrate you, and just sincerely thank you for the work that you do. You are incredible. Um, As you know, I've always been a fan, so I'm so grateful that we had a chance to chat with you and introduce you to our audience. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank Thank you. Thank you.
0: I'm still sitting here in awe and feeling really grateful to Rachel. Because I know that confronting racism, confronting white women and dealing with white fragility is very taxing and laborious. And I'm just so grateful that she is willing to dive in and do the work on behalf of us.
1: I'm with you. I mean, I I want to, oh, if she does a lecture out here, we'll definitely have to support and go to her lecture. I want to also check out those templates and just look into her online catalog because I know that it could be really valuable. And even think about maybe bringing her to my job because we're, we're, you know, such a progressive organization and tech company. It'd be nice to have those conversations there. And really, I mean, these are heavy hitting conversations. And so I think that's necessary. And I mean, I was telling you down before we started recording, like just to see someone, go from, you know, this life, like Rachel said, I felt this way, like, oh, I see these, this dream, these dreams and goals for myself. And you see this person before, and then you see them take off. And we always, you know, dreamers and visionaries, we always think about what it's going to be like, but then She's actually on the other side. She's actually there. and So to be in that space and her talking about, oh, I'm in Martha's Vineyard, you know, Martha's Vineyard on my vacation. I'm like, yes, girl, live that life doing this full time. I think it's so inspiring and aspirational for you, lady. If you're listening, you're like, I have this vision for myself. I'm holding this vision. And though it may not seem like I'll get there right now. You never know when your post is going to go viral. You never know when someone, you know, higher up is going to see you online. Social media has been an amazing platform for so many people. Mm-hmm. I know for me, it's helped me build my brand and connect with other people. We have the podcast yeah. that allows us to, you know, come into your house, come into your car and chat with you in these intimate moments. And so I think just watching her journey is just so incredible and just so inspiring.
0: Yeah.
1: Black girl magic all Yay. day. Yes, yes. So be sure to check out the show notes, lady. And we have some really good content for you coming up this month. So be sure to stay tuned and share it with your mama, your auntie, your cousin, your sister, your colleagues. I mean, share it out. Um, we also want to thank you for your support because we just hit 20,000 views in, what was that? What month are we in? In July. 20,000 yeah. views in July. And that is because of you. So we want to thank you, lady, for validating our work and showing up and letting us know what you want to hear what type of content you want to see. Continue to leave us reviews and let us know because we create this for you. So we look for, we look at you for guidance as well in addition to our own ideas. So we thank you, we appreciate you and we'll see you next time.
0: Thanks for joining us today in Her Space. Please note that our show may contain conversations about self-help, advice, self-empowerment and mental health
1: Or check out our website at herspacepodcast.com. And before we meet again, repeat after me. I will not judge myself for where I'm starting. I'm making progress every day.
0: Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week, lady.